As you all know by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL and you will get up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. 1. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code JUSTBASEBALL. 2. Deposit at least $10 and place your first wager on any game. 3. You will receive up to $1,500 in bonus bets if your bet loses. Just make sure you use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL when you sign up. Disclaimer. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions and must be 21 or older to wager. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., New York, or Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, New Jersey, Nevada, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, 1-800-327-369. 5050 in Massachusetts, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, and 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan, in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL and get your $1,500 first bet offer today. Halloween listeners of the Just Baseball Show. It is Tuesday, October 31st, and Game 3 of the World Series is in the books. I'm Peter Apple. That is Arm Layton, and we're going to recap the entire thing as well as preview Game 4, and it is all brought to you by the king of sportsbooks. That is BetMGM. Use promo code JustBaseball when you sign up and deposit into your newly created account. Download the BetMGM sports app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Place your first bet offer and receive up to $1,000 back in bonus bets if it loses. If that bet does lose, your bonus bets will be available once the wager is settled. Gambling problem? Call or text 1-800-GAMBLER. Must be 21 or older. Aram, when I said happy Halloween, you completely forgot. You're down oh, there totally. in the Arizona Fall League. We're locked into World Series Game 3. I haven't dressed up for shit. I haven't gone out because we have baseball to discuss. Yeah, actually, when I when I heard you say the word happy, I'm like, what, where is it going? I like totally blanked out on it. But I, I hope everybody out there is enjoying it and having a good time. Probably celebrated over the weekend. But, um, dude, I, I'm going to be celebrating it by going to the ballpark and, and enjoying these games. I, I am interested to see if they do anything in the Arizona Fall League. I think... In the past, like sometimes the guys will take BP in like costumes, which is pretty funny. I'm here for that. That would be fun. But uh, yeah, it's been a fun blend, dude. <clears throat> Go to the Arizona Fall League games and then hightail it back to you know the Airbnb to, to to catch. Usually, I'll be honest, I miss like the first inning, but get back there for like the second and onward. And so far, man, like haven't really missed that much in the first, it, especially this past game. It was flying through, though. I got nervous. I'm like, dude, I might miss half the game. With the way it was yeah, starting, with the with the first three innings was like fifteen minutes. 
And just to unveil the curtain, obviously we record right after the game is done. So I text Aram saying, hey, we probably won't have to record at one in the morning because this game's going to be over in 15 minutes. Yeah. But overall, give us your one big takeaway so far from the Arizona Fall League before we recap game three. Yeah, it's funny. So I, I there's one guy I saw today that actually could tie into this conversation with the Rangers. But my overall takeaway, dude, is just. There's so much talent out there. Like there's so many players who are just insanely just gifted. And and of course there's like guys that we all know if you're semi prospect head, like, you know, a lot of the names that are out here, but some of the names that people don't know that even maybe I barely knew they're impressive. Like there's guys out here that people have barely heard of that can do really impressive things. So I think that was, uh, that always seems to be the, the number one takeaway for me. Um, but today specifically, I saw Emiliano Tioto from the Rangers organization hit 102 and, and mm. was sitting 100 to 101. That was fun. That was, that was pretty nasty. Uh, and then, uh, Chase DeLauder had an unbelievable three run shot yesterday with the guardians, uh, that, I mean, that guy is built like a linebacker, but plus runners, that was crazy. So I'll, I'll be, I'll be breaking that all down on the call up. Uh, excited to to discuss kind of all the fall league takeaways, but it's an awesome experience for anyone that ever finds themselves out in this area of Arizona. Well, let's start with a guy who could be playing in the Arizona fall league. He's 21 years old. There are plenty of 21 year olds out oh, yeah. there. And that is Evan Carter, another two for three day from Evan Carter to bring his batting average up to 333 within a thousand OPS. Miguel Cabrera, Ty Cobb, Juan Soto, Evan Carter. Those are the youngest cleanup hitters in World Series history. And what just continues to blow me away about Evan Carter is his plate discipline, right? It's not like he's walking a ton. Um, He did, of course, have a walk in this game. But he never gets out of his approach. He's as disciplined of a 21-year-old. It really reminds me of Juan Soto when he was first coming up in that World Series run, right? Yeah. One thing to just be a great hitter, it's another thing to make professional pitchers come to you at such a young age. I love this kid's mentality. He's just out there having fun. We heard, um, I think it was after game one, they asked him how he was feeling. He was like, yeah, I was pretty nervous for at the start, but then all those nerves just get wiped away. This guy's just having a blast playing in the World Series and the Rangers are up 2-1, and he's a big reason why. It's been amazing, dude, to just just see how comfortable, like you said, and and just the way he commands his at-bats. And it's the confidence that Bruce Bochy has, too. And that's what the fascinating aspect of this is to me, too, because a lot of these more tenured managers, they tend to prefer players with more tenure. But the way Bruce Bochy has just gone headfirst into trusting Evan Carter and putting him in big spots. And Evan Carter's earned that, of course. But, you know, we've seen other situations where, and I'll be honest, like Dusty Baker, I wonder if Evan Carter's on the Astros, if Dusty Baker's giving him as much, you know, of an opportunity right away as, you know, maybe Bruce Bochy has. I don't know. Well, no way to prove it. But I I think it's, again, a testament to Bochy's feel too, just knowing who he's got and saying, okay, yes, this is a kid, but this is a kid that's built to be able to handle it. Just like Juan Soto, just like Miguel Cabrera. The thing that all three of those guys have in common is that 
their heart rate doesn't change. And that was the one thing that stuck out to me when I asked Jeff Conine on Outside the Box about you know, what stood out to you when you saw 19, then newly turned 20 year old Miguel Cabrera, you know, on, on the big stage. Like and he said, because it looked like a regular game to him. That's what stood out to me. Like he treated it as if it was, you know, a, a pickup game on the backfields. And that's how Juan Soto was when we saw him help them make that run. And that's exactly how Evan Carter has been. So uh, there's a reason why Bochi is so good. And I think it's, it's of course, baseball acumen, but I think it's also just human acumen as well. And just kind of knowing what he's got with some of his players. You and I were sitting on the couch together watching game two, and we were talking about Evan Carter and I knew he wasn't a top prospect coming up. Of course, he became a top prospect once he hit the ground running in the minor leagues. But for anyone coming in new, right, because we've talked about it, I think, briefly before. But can you run us through where Evan Carter was just a few years ago and the path to making this type of impact for the Texas Rangers in the World Series hitting fourth yeah, we. I think I, I'm trying to remember if I talked about it here on the call up uh, in the last couple of weeks. But I mean, I, there was a point in time where I, mean, I think it's been well documented now where he wasn't, you know, considered really a top 500 draft prospect, all that crazy stuff. But even beyond that, you know, he, he when he was performing this year and going into this season, you know, we had him as a top 15 prospect. But again, like he was still a guy that seemed like he was pretty far off, right? He's pretty skinny, uh, still getting developed in terms of just getting at bats because he was drafted in the shortened 2020 draft. And then 2021 was kind of his first full season and starting as a guy out of high school. Like there was a lot of development still to be had. And I thought even going into this year that he was still probably another year away. Like I thought he would have made his debut next season. Now, let alone make an impact, you know, at, at the big league level in the World Series. Like, that's a whole different beast. But the thing that it boils down to the most for me is I, I'm pretty sure that when Duke was looking at their, because that's where he was committed, uh, looking at their entire recruiting class, from what I understand, from what I was told, I think they had like 13, 14 commits in that class. The entire coaching staff felt as though Evan Carter was like the most likely to get to campus. And, and, you know, usually you'll lose a couple of your top recruits every year to the draft. Uh, just that means you had a good recruiting class. And I'm pretty sure they felt as though Evan Carter was the least likely to be signed away. And that's who ends up being signed away. And they were floored. And here we are, you know, a couple of years later, it seems like that was the best decision humanly possible. I don't know where everyone else from that class is, that recruiting class is now but I can promise you they're not anywhere better than Evan Carter is. And, and that shows you how fluid development is and also how little we know about guys when they're 17, 18, 19 years old. The scout that found Evan Carter, if he were ever to become a free agent, he might get <laughs> similar money to what Jordan <laughs> Montgomery is going to get this off season. Yeah. Unbelievable story from a guy drafted out of high school or not not even quite drafted out of high school right he was committed to duke got drafted out of high school yeah drafted out of high school and dude i've seen the video like he did not look good like i don't know what that scout saw um and i mean you could see the projection and all that but to say hey it's let's let's snag him in the in the second round here they gave him under slot they gave him third round money but like let's snag him and let's let's pay a lot of money here for a guy that nobody else is really in on like that is that is a lot of confidence in your assessment of a player. And, and I love that. So just going through the game, we got two 
scoreless innings from both starting pitchers in Brandon Fott and Max Scherzer. And I wrote down Brandon Fott looks much better than Max Scherzer right now. Um, I thought Scherzer had the feel for the curveball, but really not much else. But the D-backs didn't fully take advantage. And then the bats got to Fott. But before we get to the Rangers bats, we got to talk about Max Scherzer. Yeah. Right. We all saw the play where it was hit off his back to Josh Young, who made an incredible play. Not just that play alone, but the fact that they got Alec Thomas on that play, who flies. Then he tries to jog back out for the fourth inning, and he's grimacing. He doesn't look good, and Bochi immediately says, hey. And I think even GM Chris Young is yes. saying, get him out. That's he, he was found on audio recording or something. I think that you could see you could see him literally. I'm from the box. Reading. The camera was up, and I think literally giving like the no go, like kind of like hand over the neck, like you got to pull him. Um, which you know you could see it. You, you could just see how uncomfortable he was. It's so crazy to see Max Scherzer leaving a game with an injury. Not it's not crazy because of course Scherzer is getting up there in age, but in Game Three of the World Series, that adrenaline from that crazy psychopath that we all love dearly, for him to exit the game and really not put up a fight, how can we think that he's going to pitch again this series? It might just be over for him. Yeah, and that's why I'm like almost just trying to be like refreshing anything that we can get from reporters as you know we're literally recording this and. Yeah, I, I'm I'm curious if it had anything to do with the ball coming back at him or if it's, again, just like back spasms or whatever. But this this quote came in just now from uh, from Disha Thazar. Oh, I hope I said that right. Um, Fox Sports MLB reporter. Uh, and she said Max Scherzer is adamant he's dealing with back spasms, which he's experienced more than five, but less than 10 times in his career. So like around seven, uh, he, <laughs> he thinks he'll be or he thinks he'll know more about the injury in 48 hours. So okay. here's my thing is I, 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 I get that you have to try to keep Scherzer in this roster. And, and the next question would be, you know, if he is hurt, who, who do you replace him with? Odds are it's going to be someone that's inferior to even probably have banged up Scherzer. But I mean, how much how much more faith can you have in, in Scherzer's body holding up at this point? And like, there's a whole conversation to be had about whether he should even play beyond this season because it just feels like every time he strings together a couple starts, another thing kind of flares up, right? Another ailment with his body. And it always seems to be oblique, back. Like, it just seems to be like his entire body uh, just not keeping up with him anymore. And I think if he's good to go, you empty the tank and try it. But the problem is, this puts them in a bad spot because if, if you have Scherzer going again at some point, I think it can only be in relief because any game where you have Scherzer trying to start for you, you can't leave yourself exposed to, oh, he might have to leave in the third and, and our bullpen gets taxed again. And that's the way it just happened here. And I know it's a win for the Rangers, but in terms of the way the next couple of games are set up, it's definitely an advantage to you know the Diamondbacks with the pitching situation. Well, let's move on to how the Rangers got the offense rolling against Brandon and fought. So Nathaniel Lowe started us off. Marcus Semien, and I even wrote down, um, and we'll talk about Christian Walker in a second. I wrote down, if Christian Walker is hot, the snakes are going to be very dangerous, especially if Semien on the other side can't find anything. In the first inning, we have a 3-1 count against Marcus Semien, and you expect a guy like that to just pull a fastball and destroy it. 
but he just hit it straight up into the air. And this has been a thing with Marcus Semyon that right now he's still hitting 197 on the series. Luckily, he got that base hit to fall, and then Corey Seager hit the home run. And that was it against Brandon Fott. I thought he pitched really well. The final line for him, five and a third, four hits, three earned runs, four strikeouts. I thought he made that mistake to Seager. Maybe that wasn't the best pitch to Marcus Semien, but he kept them in the game, gave them a chance to win. And I thought he could have pitched even longer, but Torrey Lovello gave him the boot after a couple of times around the order. But this is the same guy who got his welcome to the big leagues moment in four innings, posted a 13.50 ERA to the Rangers. You could see his development as he continues, and he's just getting better and better against the Rangers offense. He really made one mistake, that pitch to Corey Seager, and everybody is just making quote-unquote mistakes. Is yeah. it even a mistake when Corey Seager hits a home run off you? Yeah, I was going to say, like, the, the mistake is just, like, I guess, pitching to Corey Seager, but you're not <laughs> yeah. just going to put him on every single time, right? The, the, the only mistake was that. But, no, I'm with you, man. I thought I thought Fott was great again. I You'll take five and a third of three-run ball pretty much any day of the week from from – your starter. I mean, what what else do you want from a guy? You know, when you're going against one of the best offenses in baseball, when you're in a position where, I mean, this is a, a young arm who they've now seen already, and to give them that start, I mean, you got a shot every single time. If he's handing the ball to somebody else with one out in the sixth, and and he only gave up three runs, you've got a shot to win every single game on this stage. And um, again, I thought Fought was really good. You mentioned the one home run. I mean, that was really the the one big blow, but I thought it was impressive the way he was able to keep going uh, and the way that they actually let him go a little bit longer than he's gone in the past, even though you know you thought he, maybe he could finish the inning. That's still a little bit more leeway, leeway than they gave him in the past. And I do think that part of that, and I think John Smoltz kind of uh, alluded to this, was that even though they were losing, they saw Scherzer go down. They saw you know the situation here where John Gray was potentially going to be the guy that was starting the next ball game. And Jack and I spent a lot of time talking about uh, I was saying how fascinated I am by how good John Gray's been out of the pen and how Bochy's going to try to weaponize him because if you put him back as a starter, is he going to look as good? But you might need him as a starter, but he's been really good in multi-inning relief, and now we just saw it again. Um, so I, I was really fascinated to see how they'd use him. He ends up probably winning them this baseball game with the way he was able to just come out cold and you know jump in there and help them and, and bridge the gap. But that does leave them exposed now next game because I do think that was the guy that was probably going to get the ball with how they were looking. So it's an interesting spot at the very least, even though they didn't get the win fought did kind of help solidify that availability of pitching advantage by giving them more than five innings. Exactly. Well, I've talked about this. I think almost every single time Brandon fought has now pitched in the playoffs so far, but just utilizing his power sinker, he didn't throw it much. In the regular season, definitely did not throw it to left-handed hitters at all. But now, right, this was a guy who's a 40% fastball guy, huge sweeper, tons of change-ups, throwing the curveball, and the sinker was only used about 10% of the time. Now, the fastball usage drops, sinker usage all the way up to 28%, and it's a real big-time pitch. The fact that he can go fastball and sinker and all of these different looks and all of these different speed windows – and now he's finding his command a little bit. He did have two walks, but the command with him, this is why we're so excited for him moving forward. And he tweaked the the sweeper a little bit um, from the release point and, and the break. And, and that's been really remarkable. And to be able to make these changes on the flies is crazy. And, and the other side of it is you mentioned the sinker. I mean, this is a team we talked about in the past. They crush 
vert. They crush four seamers. And no matter whether you have Paul Seawald carry or, or Christian Javier carry, it doesn't matter. They crush it. They're not as good against sinkers. And that's what he started mixing in a little bit more. And then, it, of course, the sweeper just being such a good weapon for him. Uh, it's been really fun to watch. And I, I know that the Diamondbacks have to be really pumped about what they've got here in him moving forward. I thought it was really fascinating who they went with pitching-wise after that. And again, I thought that was kind of leaning into the the pitching advantage that they're going to have over the next two games. I wouldn't say that it was waving the white flag uh, because it was only a 3-0 game. And it, these guys were going to have to throw at some point, right? No matter what, you have three games in a row here. You, you would have had to go with Miguel Castro and Kyle Nelson uh, and Luis Frias at some point. It would have been either the next game in game four or game five. At some point, somebody wouldn't have been available and you would have had to go to some of these guys. So they elect to do it here. Lavella elects to do it in a spot where they're losing, um, but it's still a ball game and they actually do their job. But the good part about this is they do their job. They keep you in the game. But beyond that, you've got all of your best relievers available. I'd argue that they literally went with every guy I trust the least right now. Miguel Castro, Kyle Nelson, Luis Frias and Andrew Southrank. I mean, those are all the guys at this present moment. Southrank looked good in the beginning, but I mean, we've seen him struggle of late. Those were all the guys that pretty much I put in a separate bucket of I don't want them in high leverage. And those are all the guys they go with. You got a really fresh bullpen rolling in the next game. Here's the thing, though. I I totally agree with you about that. It was the bottom of the bullpen. (laughs) But isn't Miguel Castro kind of the only one that we're actually nervous about? Like Luis Frias has been pretty damn good. Pretty good. Kyle Nelson has also been pretty damn good. You know, Saul Frank, I agree with you. He's a little bit off and on, but overall, right, he's still rocking a 3-6-0 ERA. Like when Miguel Castro came in, that really felt like waving the white flag. And that's a testament to this Diamondbacks bullpen. Like even the bottom guys can still be very effective. We forget they're going up against arguably the best offense in Major League Baseball. And they're continuing to shut down in the later innings and it frees up the Ryan Thompson's, the Kevin Ginkles, Paul Seawalds, who can go multiple innings tomorrow in a must win game. Of course, every game is must win, but down two one, if you go down three one, especially with two more games in Arlington, it's going to be tough to win the series. So I was I actually wrote down. I was really impressed with the bottom of the bullpen. Yeah, I just could not believe Miguel Castro that he actually got out. It's good for him. Hey, shout I, out Miguel Castro. I was also sh- shocked that that was the first arm they went to. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was that was just was surprising like... all all around. Um, but yeah, Castro did his job. He, he got outs and um, Frias is nasty. That's a guy I've watched since he was a prospect. And I mean, it's crazy stuff. It's just whether it's in the zone. We actually just talked about it. I said on the last episode that I trust Frias more than Castro. Uh, and we end up getting oh, yeah. both the next game, which is really funny. Um, but I, again, they're in a good spot. Of course, the Rangers, you take the dub and you run with it. But I mean, this was a costly win, not in, the, in terms of anything they could control, but you, you lose two key players. And and I, I mean, that's a really tough blow. And especially from the pitching perspective, again, like, you had John Gray throw how many pitches? I mean, he was incredibly efficient. He only threw 30 pitches through three innings. So that's three up downs, but 30 pitches, 25 strikes. It's absolutely insane. We we're just gushing about him last episode and he ends up doing this the very next. That said, he's not going to be available tomorrow. I, I guess he could be available for game five. So that part of it makes it interesting. Like if he opens in game five, it, he can go. 40, 50 pitches. I'm just really fascinated. Like this has become 
the chess match of all chess matches for Bruce Bochy now. Um, and again, they've got the perfect guy at the helm who's been here, been there, done that. But with the Scherzer injury, we're going to talk about Adolis in a second. And, and the pitching situation was complicated anyways. These aren't teams that have, you know, classic five-man rotations right now. They don't. So they both were already not ready to name who the game four starter was for a reason. Now they're even less ready to name their game four starter. So it's, it's a really interesting time. I think even by the time we get to tomorrow morning, we, we might not have an idea of, of who's going to get the ball. We might not know until a couple hours before game time. Exactly. So we want to preview game four, but we might not know who the starting pitchers are. It might just be Andrew Heaney against oh, TBD. It might, we it aren't very sure possible. yet, but hopefully we could just stall by talking more about the game until we get there. And then hopefully <laughs> we have a starting pitching matchup, but I doubt it. Um, going back to the third inning arm, I wrote down, who does Christian Walker think he is? Bro ain't Corbin Carroll. Um, when he ran through that stop <laughs> sign. To, yeah. Um, and a dually Yeah. Just nabbed him at home. Just an incredible play. But the on the play, right, it's a base hit to right field. And I don't blame Walker. He's getting the go sign from his third base coach. And he just puts his head down and starts sprinting and then gets called out. Like that just felt like a momentum play, especially in the bottom of the third. Then the Rangers jumped on him and then just kind of held that really took the crowd out of the game. Of course, you know, you could say, oh, Christian Walker, you can't be doing that. He got the sign. He should have looked up. Just a tough play. Just a it's tough a really. Play. I made a joke. I made a joke about. No, it. No, it was. He was motoring though. I will he say he, he did have his. He was trying his best Corbin Carroll impression. But yeah. dude, I honestly don't blame Walker for that one too much. Of course, like I thought it was a tick two to tango there. They both messed up. Tony Beasley, the third base coach for for the Rangers, and and you know Christian Walker. But I mean that was one of the most like fluid wave you to a stop like it was one motion like the arm was still waving back up and then it waved into a stop like that's it was actually incredibly smooth yeah incredibly it was really smooth, smooth. but like <laughs> that's tough like it's, it's not like he was waving and then like two count and then he's like no 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 wait wait, wait stop it was a wave into a stop so that kind of shows you that at that point he had already waved a couple times and it was yeah. the third wave where then it went into a hand up at that point walker already saw two waves and he's put his head down and he's Bolton around third. I don't blame him. What am I supposed to run and stare at the third base coach the whole time? Like there's, it's tough. It's tough. And it's also a really hard job for, and I think it's one of the most underratedly difficult jobs in sports is being a third base coach. You're basically deciding whether you should send your guys to, you know, the most important spot on the, on the diamond and whether they're going to beat the throw there or not. You got to know, who has what arm? You got to know, you know how fast your guy is. You got to know where he's at in relation to where the ball is. All in like a matter of several seconds. It, that is one of the most underratedly impossible jobs, and I think that's why Ron Washington just waves everybody. Uh, but yeah, I I would put sixty percent to seventy percent blame on Tony Beasley. No offense, like I'm sure Beasley like. Sorry, it's probably the first time you've ever been he might blamed. Be listening, any- he might be listening, and he might have taken offense. Yeah, well, I, well, Mike Maddox saw the already. <laughs> like you saw what he said to Tommy Pham, about Tommy Pham. He's like, "Way to go, you dumb fuck." That's, that's <laughs> what the that's what the lip reading said. Um, yeah, so Tony Beasley, man, probably probably got to separate the waves and the uh, and the stop sign a little bit more. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. 
Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. It's so funny. I'm so glad you brought up the smoothness because I wrote down it was kind of like Beasley was getting ready for a three-point shot, just kind of getting into a stance. Like he's like, stop. But then it was so fluid that he was going up for the jump shot. That, that Does that make any sense? No, it does. Like the arm went down and it was like, Again, oh. You got to remember, all I do is write down my instant thoughts and then I don't delete them. So that's what I wrote <laughs> down. It felt like a jump shot. Um, let's keep moving on towards the game. Um, that was a lot of the big time highlights, right? This game ended three to one. Um, but I wanted to talk about Alfonso Marquez, the umpire, for a little bit. Oh, I'm glad. I actually had a note. I had a note too. So before you get into that, I'll just tell you my note. My note was, "Where the fuck is Pat Hoberg?" Yeah. Uh, and I have a whole rant on that. But yes, please, please lead the way on Alfonso Marquez. So I just wrote down Alfonso Marquez has the tightest strike zone. Even strikes aren't strikes, but some balls are strikes. Yes. I thought he was horrible. I mean, no, he was the entire bad. game, like, and there was big time calls, both early and late. The big time call that he missed was on Gabriel Moreno, where it was a slider from Jose Leclerc that missed by like a full ball outside. And then you, know, you could tell Moreno was just pissed because everybody in that stadium. I think knew that was, was like ball. two balls. I thought that was like two balls outside. It might have been like it was. It was outside. There was no debate. That was a ball. Then Moreno comes back and grounds out to third. That is an inning changing call. That's a game changing call yeah. because yeah. you get the leadoff guy on first base with Leclerc, who, with all due respect, has given up the long ball in order to lose games before. Not saying that he would have, but Christian Walker then steps to the plate with the runner on. Maybe he gets pitched different. Everything changes from that AB. And it was good to see Christian Walker finally hit some balls hard today because he has been inept at the plate and he is so important for this Diamondbacks team. I've said this before. The X factor is the for the Rangers is Marcus Semyon. And on the Diamondbacks, it's Christian Walker. So you get Christian Walker up there in a different type of scenario. Maybe he hits a home run and ties the game. But Alfonso Marquez, just the entire game, like the umpire should never be the story, Arm. Yeah. Right? Like we're going through the bullet points of what happened. We could talk about the bullpens and how great they were at the end. We could talk about some of the offense. But then when part four of a four-part series of what happened during the game is the umpire. Like, come on, can we do yeah. better? It's the World Series game three. Why do we have these guys behind home plate? And that's that's what I wanted to get into because I hate that I'm, we're even talking about them. And I, it, But even to, to build on that point about Walker being the tying run, how about the fact that you'd have Tommy Pham up as the tying run? So instead of it being two outs, nobody on, like you're fighting for your life, you have your hottest hitter up, again, representing the tying run. And then if he yeah. doesn't get get a hit, you got one more guy getting to the plate here in Lourdes Gurriel who didn't have the best game. He had some really ugly at-bats, but that's still been one of your better hitters uh, to this point. So it, it just totally took the wind out of their sails. It was interesting because when you and I watched the game together in game one, I was getting really frustrated with the umpire. You were getting less frustrated. It was DJ Rayburn game one. And Rayburn, according to umpire auditor, ranked 75th out of 92 umpires. Like, and he missed, he missed 13 calls in that game one. I was really annoyed, but you brought up a good point that at least 
he was consistent with it. Like he was just <laughs> calling everything off the plate, but it was consistent. Like there wasn't some that were being called and some not like balls in that spot. Like they were just getting called. This game was a little bit more frustrating with Marquez because I think you had a pitch that was a borderline strike before that to Moreno that he called a ball. And then the ball that was called a strike was like two, two to three balls further out. And there's no such thing as makeup calls. Like that's not a, like, that's not how that works. And, and I thought the other pitch might've been a ball anyways. So it was, it was one of those things where I felt like this zone was just incredibly inconsistent. And my frustration is this. And again, according to umpire auditor on Twitter X, whatever, DJ Rayburn was game one, the game one umpire, 75th out of 92, right? And he missed 13 calls. Well, Cause guess what? You do what you probably do most of the time in the regular season. Quinn Walcott, who's the best ranked umpire. He didn't have his best game. He actually had one of his worst games of the year. That's okay. That happens. Big stage. No, yeah. well, like, come on. Like, uh, yes. The best ranked umpire. Now he has the worst game of his uh, yeah. life. Like, uh, look, yes. Like, yeah, of but, course. But, but happen, at least he's but, there. Like, at least he's yeah, there. What there, we can control is having the right guys there. When he's you look there. at, uh, who's the guy? Uh, Marquez. Alfonso Marquez today, 77th out of 92, according to umpire auditor. Why are we not having one, two, and three? And, and maybe MLB has their own system, but I can promise you that there's not going to be a 76 spot discrepancy between this umpire auditor and MLB system because it's very cut and dry. It's the strike zone. And it's whether it's in the strike zone and he calls it right or out and he calls it right. So it's that simple. What I don't get is you have the data, you have the ability to track who the best umpires are. Why do you not make sure that you have the best umpires in any given season calling the games for the biggest games of the season? It makes no sense to me. You can't say like, oh, it's unfair. Other guys aren't getting a chance. But it's no different than the players. It's the same thing. Umpire better. Like there should be an incentive for umpiring better. These guys already have more job security than Supreme Court justices and and Brian Cashman. Like all they need to do is just perform and you get more opportunity. Like that's it. That's all you got to do. If we're already not going to like penalize these guys for sucking, reward them for succeeding. And they have to earn the opportunity to be an umpire in the playoffs and the World Series. I have no idea how they do this process, but it ain't good enough. I laughed twice on that point. First of all, the Supreme Court justice line was perfect, but then you just snuck in Brian Cashman in there just to say fuck you. Just for you. Yeah, but it's very true. It's extremely true. And it's almost like the equivalent of it is. And of course, it's not the equivalent, but my brain at midnight is thinking that this is the equivalent of it. It's like if they play a regular season and MLB gets to pick the World Series teams. (laughs) Yeah. They pick the Royals facing off against the Pirates with all due respect to the Royals and the Pirates. But that's it's what we're doing here. It's like, well, I mean, we're giving these guys a shot. Yeah. I mean, DJ Rayburn, you you could say DJ Rayburn is the Royals of umpires based on how he graded out this year. And Alfonso Marquez is the Pirates. Yeah. Yeah. He's got some potential. My brain is firing at midnight. Um, Let's talk about John Gray for a second. Let's talk about this bad man. So John Gray has found something in the bullpen and he was talking in the post game uh, with David Ortiz. And it was so funny. David Ortiz asked him, Hey, can you think you could go tomorrow? And he's like, fuck yeah, I can. He didn't say fuck yeah, but he's down. Like this guy has found something in the bullpen. He's a guy who's normally five pitches, but he has simplified things. And he even said it himself. He's like out of the bullpen. It's so simplified. I'm fastball slider and even called his curveball that he threw an anomaly. He had one relief appearance in nine years 
His fastball averaged 95.7 miles an hour during the regular season, averaging 97, 87.9 on a slider, now averaging 89.8. So both pitches up about two miles an hour. Yeah. And he just continues to shove. Yeah. It, and beyond that, fill up the strike zone. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the amazing thing. And I think it's just focusing on two pitches, like you said, where, you know, he's not turning over lineups and going to different offerings. His fastball and slider have always been his bread and butter. And he's just leaning into the bread and butter and attacking hitters. And that's pretty freaking awesome. And I think he's probably seen, I mean, he's always been able to miss bats, right? Like that he's always had good stuff, but he's not never been like the most extreme you know, swing and miss guy. But I think he's seeing his stuff play up. As you mentioned, it's clearly playing up. You you, you get a two ticks on your fastball and two ticks on a slider like it, with more break, like he's ripping it. Uh, you start seeing some of these pitches move a little bit more than they have or or get by guys a little bit more frequently than they than they did in the past. And you gain this confidence in the zone. You just start filling it up. And that's what he did. 30 pitches, 25 strikes. And it just seems like he is so, so confident out there. Now, if he starts, will it look the same? I don't know, but if you start him, it's going to be something similar to this. So he doesn't need to turn over the lineup twice. If John Gray starts and he goes three strong, you know, and maybe you can push it into a fourth, that's great. That's great. And he can still pitch the same way. He can go fastball slider that way pretty damn heavily. If he wants to throw in an anomaly curveball, go ahead. But I think that's the really interesting part of it is he saved them today. And he's going to have to come up big again. I don't think it's tomorrow. I think it's probably the game after. I don't know because they actually might have the classic scheduled start of the game after that. So I don't know what they're going to do, but it's it's a really positive development for them considering everything else that has happened. The, the attrition of their pitching all year long, which we've talked about throughout the season, and then the Max Scherzer situation. Hell, man, John Gray looks like a better option than Max Scherzer right now. I hate saying that about a Hall of Famer, and I really hope that people don't take – this lasting image of, of Max Scherzer and diminish what has been a first ballot Hall of Famer's career. This isn't about him not being able to perform on the big stage. This isn't him rising, not being able to rise to the occasion. This is a 40-year-old's body just breaking down after a million innings of throwing in the mid-90s and carving hitters up for like two decades. It's it's nothing else other than that. But that said, I think John Gray's the better option right now, regardless, healthy or not. No, I'm really glad that you made that point, too, because I saw a lot of people trashing him on Twitter. Like, of course, the Mm -hmm. old man can't pitch anymore. And same thing happening with Kershaw. Like, show some damn respect for these guys. They are still out there giving their teams their all. And it's not like Scherzer even got killed. How about three shutout innings for Scherzer? And if he kept pitching, I think he would have had a great start overall. Right. And the, the thing that was crazy, too, guy dealing coming back from an arm injury. He's dealing with back spasms. And before the start, he had a cut on his finger that they had to glue shut. And we know about all these guys who have been done with blisters, cuts on your fingers. Like you need all the surface area clean on those fingers in order to get the spin that you want in order to get out big league hitters with your best stuff. So he's dealing with like three different things. Comes out game three, three shutout could really only land the curveball, but was still battling out there and only had to exit because his back couldn't go anymore. Scherzer, Kershaw, these guys are first ballot Hall of Famers giving it their all. But moving forward to John Gray, I do agree with you. At this current moment, you have to have more faith in John Gray getting outs right at this moment than Max Scherzer. Hopefully, 
back spasms, they come back and it's totally fine. Yeah. He can go in a couple of days. That would be great. But still, even if he can, John Gray has been fantastic and looks to continue that with this newfound arsenal. But Arm, I wrote down that I really wanted to talk about the strategy of taking John Gray out. I just kind of wanted to pick your brain and have a back and forth about it because I wrote down, don't take out John Gray. Like, let him go arguably as long as he can. Mm -hmm. So then in game four, LeClerc, Chapman, Spores, they're all good to go. And then you can lengthen them out. Then you could go Spores for two innings. Then you could go LeClerc for two innings in those spots in order to lengthen it. Get everything from John Gray. But then there's also the side of it. Well, if you do that, then he won't be available for game four, won't be available for game five, probably isn't available for game six. Yeah. So it was like that back and forth in my mind, understanding why Bochi did it. But then also it would have helped them out in game four. What was your takeaway on taking him out after three innings? Yeah, it was. it's a really tough spot. And I think that the way things worked out, it actually works perfectly. But if Spores ran into some trouble, he throws a lot of pitches or LaCourc has to come in for Chapman a little bit earlier. Now he's unavailable. Then it looks a little bit more interesting, but I think he actually did it perfectly. You have John Gray go 30 and now he's going to be available. Like you said, and Spores, Chapman and LaCourc coincidentally all through 16 pitches. Um, and so all of them should be available. Right. And I don't know if they'll go to all three. You want Sorry? Chapman available tomorrow? That's what I was going to say anyways. Like, yeah, I don't we'll even, talk about that in yeah, a second. Yeah, I don't trust that guy at all. He got, yeah. he just, it's, it was a Houdini act, but you know, you got LeCork available and you got Spores available. Both those guys, you know, hadn't thrown the game before anyway. So I think it was a perfect, perfect way to toe the line. Cause if Gray goes to 40, 50 pitches, like you said, it's going to be, you're not seeing him till game six. Uh, but also you still want to make sure you get enough innings out of him. So you don't have to stretch spores out for two because we've seen them stretch spores out for more than one um, or stretch LaCork out for more than one, which we've seen them do. God forbid you ever have to ride Chapman more than one inning. That'll never happen. But yeah, I think it was a risk and that, that worked out perfectly for them though. Uh, and, and again, that's just Bochy's feel. So crazy too, you know, the Rangers, they needed bullpen help at the deadline and they go get a role as trap Chapman and they trade Cole Reagans to mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. It's like the one mess up that this Rangers front office has had yeah. this year. Yeah. And the as Chapman, I wrote it down. I was like, this guy is a liability. Could not believe he got the double play to get out of that. <laughs> I was fully convinced could tell Marte was going to hit a home run there mm -hmm. from his right side, more power coming in with Chapman. And I wrote in my article because I took Rangers money line and I was like, I like how the bullpen sets up in this game after Scherzer because Chapman has had plenty of rest. And I wrote down, and I almost looked like a total moron because I wrote down as a Yankee fan. I've seen plenty of a role Chapman. If you're getting him on back to back days and he's 98, that's the Chapman that's going to get tattooed. You give him a couple of days to rest and he comes in throwing 103. That's the Chapman that we all know and love. What happened comes into the game throwing 99 with rest and i'm like it doesn't even matter anymore those old yankee things that would happen like all he needs is the rest and he's back to normal screw that rest doesn't matter like this guy is a ticking time bomb we said the same thing about craig kimbrell in the philly series even before he gave up the blow up like and i said before that philly series started like craig kimbrell is gonna have an inning that's gonna lose you a game i still have that same feeling about a role as chapman 
He is going to lose the Rangers a game. I don't know if it's game four, game five, game six, but just be ready because yeah. this is a ticking time bomb. Yeah. And I think Bochi's feeling that too. It's also crazy that like, oh, he was only throwing 98, like the 99, like that, that's, but no, it's just wild that that's where it's at with him, but it's because his command stinks. He falls behind. Like he being able to blow one on one, one two by guys when you're behind in the count is always the way he's gotten out of things. But 97, 98, eh, it's a different story. I think he threw a pitch 96 today, which is like, you don't normally and these see these guys that. can all hit that velo too. Like yeah. it's not impossible to hit that velo, but it is when it's 102, 103, when it's 97. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a lot it's not, less it's not as, it's not outlier enough, right? It's no. the fastball. You want it to be an outlier in some way. So it, Chapman's isn't by shape. 103 is an outlier velocity wise, and, and you'll get outs there. So yeah, <laughs> I'm very curious to see what the next time we're going to see Chapman will be. We're going to see him again, but it's just going to be where and what stage and how much faith do they have in him that will uh, remain to be seen. Uh, the, the other thing I want to make sure we don't forget, and uh, I'm sure we wouldn't, but I, I just, I'm really trying to process the Adolis Garcia thing too. Yes, I was going to end with that real okay. quick too with Aroldis Chapman. Just to his credit, that slider against Carroll to buckle him was nasty. And then he did get the double play. So it's not like he's auto runs, but there is just an element in there of just like an elevated blood pressure. But then Jose Leclerc comes in, shuts the door. We already talked about the walk call by Alfonso Marquez. That inning could have completely changed in favor of the Diamondbacks. Instead, Leclerc gets the ground ball, gets a couple more outs. Game over. Texas Rangers win 3-1. to one. They take a 2-1 series lead. And I was saving the Adolis Garcia point for when we kind of preview game four in the rest of the series. And I even tweeted out Texas Rangers money line check mark. But I was more concerned with the series moving forward because Dolis Garcia exited in the seventh inning with a clear oblique thing. Yeah. And obliques, man. I mean, baseball fans know it's like the worst injury ever. You can't swing. You can barely move. I was about to say, well, I've had an oblique problem when I was in high school playing baseball, but nobody gives a shit about that. What I will say is it really, really hurts. And if that's going to be nagging him all series, you're taking the power out of Adolis Garcia, and that's if he does play. What was your takeaway there? Dude, obliques are almost always an IL stint. Um, yeah, always. And that's what I'm worried about. And and the drop-off there from, from an Adolis Garcia to what? Travis Jankowski? Who's, who's kind of good, though. <laughs> I'm a Travis Jankowski guy. Is, or is Robbie Grossman going to go back to the three-hole? He's going to still hit third. It's the most confusing, perplexing thing. If you follow me on Twitter, you know, every single time he's hitting third, I'm like, I am here again. Why is Robbie Grossman hitting third? But maybe he's the three hitter. And I was wrong this entire time. And he comes in and just, <laughs> I, I, it's going to be Grossman. It's going to be Jankowski. I'm not sure. So you mentioned Marcus Sem, and we actually, funny enough, Jack and I said the same thing. Like this lineup gets so much tougher if Marcus Semien is Marcus Semien in the leadoff spot. But now, and we know this whole team can rake, but now you look at the lineup, especially the top half of it, and you take Adolis out of that. So it's Semyon Seeger, Adolis, and then you had Evan Carter, Mitch Garver, onward, onward. I mean, now, I, not only are you 
adjusting who your three hitter is. I don't know if having Carter moves up a spot, Carver goes to the cleanup spot. I don't know what they're going to do, but there's just this, this lack of, I wouldn't say lacks the whole team ranks, but you lose this, just this fear that Adola strikes in you right behind Seager too. And this is level of protection that Seager has right now. And, and a big reason why we just talked about it, like the only mistake is pitching to Seager. Well, yeah, what are you going to do? Put him on to, to pitch to the legitimately hottest hitter on the planet. And even if all 30 teams are playing, he'd be the hottest hitter on the planet. Like it, it's a different level of protection that Seager was getting now. I mean, Evan Carter has been awesome, but it's not the same. I'm not, I'm not fearing Evan Carter turning the game on its head in one swing the way I am of Adolis Garcia right now. So assuming, and we don't know yet, but that it seems very likely you can hope I'm wrong about that, but uh, that Adolis Garcia is out. Marcus Semien's really got to step up here uh, and, and either get on base and ahead of Seager. Cause you know, that provides protection in its own way as well. Um, and, and also just, just hit, right? Like he needs to step up and be the all-star that he is. Uh, thought we saw some good things today, but it's going to be really interesting to see. I think, I know you've been wanting the the Seager walk bets, you know, all all series. I think they're as good as ever right now with with Adolis not potentially not, you know, protecting him. Yeah, thanks for bringing it up because I fucking donated in game two and I almost placed it in game three of the two day walk. And my thought was Brett Straub, like he is an incredible pitching coach. We'll pitch around guys. He don't doesn't want to get beat by the main guys. And they're just being aggressive to Corey Seager. I'm like, OK, like, I guess I won't bet the walk prop. It makes the most sense in the world. It's plus money. It's staring at me every morning and I already freaking donated in game two. You should two. do it I'm again now. Off it. Should, should I? Is now the time? Yeah. But then I'm going to do it heavy and he's not going to walk our so you can blame me on talk about it. Yeah, we got to talk about it. But yeah, th- that was the game, right? We still got to talk about um, also just one more uh, point. What a catch by Alec Thomas. Yeah. Oh, Mitch Garber. He's been what just great catch. all around. I know he didn't have any hit, any hits today, but I mean, even as at bats have just been so much better. Uh, but yeah, to, to make that grab out there, I mean, kept him in the game and, and gave him a shot. And I thought that could be a little momentum change. If we're talking about defensive plays by by rookies, uh, young players, Josh Young, I mean, that, that he continues to do at third base, multiple great plays out there. Is he swinging it consistently the way that, you know, you'd hope? Not, not quite, but he's also hitting eighth. <laughs> he's playing great defense over there. It's just been awesome to see what he's doing uh, and, and helping them in a lot of different ways. But yeah, that he made a couple plays that were just remarkable at the hot corner. I wanted to bring up Alec Thomas because, God, what a shit take by me. I said um, I would take Alec Thomas over one and a half rollovers to second base every game if I could. And ever since then, the man has turned into Ken Griffey Jr. I mean, he's just making unbelievable plays. He's hitting home runs. He's hitting freaking opposite field piss missiles. He's just doing everything right now for the Diamondbacks. And, you know, you know, you ever get that feeling like when you're going through a lineup and you're watching a game, you're like, oh, shit, Alec Thomas is up and like you sit up a little bit. It used to be, oh, Alec Thomas yeah. is up. I can go to the bathroom a little bit now. No way. And then in the field and with his speed too, such a dynamic player. Um, and then my last point, we kind of already talked about it, just resurfacing this. I thought the most underrated story in this game was the Diamondbacks back half of the bullpen, bottom of the bullpen. Castro, Nelson, Frias, and Sal Frank throwing scoreless outings. But that was it for game three. Like we said, Rangers win 3-1. Not the craziest game, not a ton of storylines from it. 
Basically, Corey Seager did his damage once again. He's amazing. Evan Carter is the youngest cleanup hitter since Miggy, Soto, and Ty Cobb. Marcus Semien finally got a big hit. Scherzer, John Gray, that bullpen did their thing, held Arizona to just one run. And Adolis Garcia and Max Scherzer injuries are very, very key here. Oh, yeah. Have we stalled enough to figure out the starting pitching matchup in game four yet, Arm? Um, I'm literally trying to to see if we're getting any info on that now. Um, but according to Kyle Glazer of Baseball America, Bruce Bochy said about 45 minutes ago uh, that he has to huddle up with his staff <laughs> to decide who the Rangers starter will be in game four. He says he'll need about an hour, but that was actually 56 minutes ago. Um, if you go to MLB.com, it shows the probables as Andrew Heaney and Joe Mantiply. A World Series game. Starters are Andrew Heaney and Joe Mantiply, which is awesome. But I don't know. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Rangers probable pitcher for Tuesday's World Series game is left-handed pitcher Andrew Heaney. Okay. So, looks like it's going to be the Heen dog. And looks like it's going to be Diamondbacks money on game four. <laughs> I mean, who would you take? Would you take a Rangers bullpen that probably won't be without with John Gray and like Josh Spores is amazing. He'll probably throw his scoreless inning. But outside of that, like LeClerc is probably only going to come in if they're winning, right? Or the game is tied. But a Diamondbacks team against Andrew Heaney and Martin Perez and other Rangers bullpen arms versus the Diamondbacks bullpen that will go out there with Joe Mantiply. They'll have Ryan Thompson. They'll have Kevin Ginkle. They'll have yeah. Paul Sweet Seawald in a game that they have to have. No, I How love, do we not pick the Diamondbacks in game four? No, I love the Diamondbacks in game four, which is exactly why they're going to lose. And I, I'm just trying to yep. predict the postseason is freaking impossible, but just I'm trying we'll to give you the information and, 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 and you can make your own hypothesis as well and make your own predictions. Here's to, to piggyback off of what, Peter said here, here's, here's the situation. Got Heaney on the other side. We lay, we set the scene with kind of the bullpen arms that they use though. So, and they use some of their guys, maybe John, John Gray piggybacks. Maybe they use him in another ball game. They've still got spores. They've still got Chapman, LeClerc all available. But again, it depends on how you want to play the next couple. When you look at the Diamondback side though, in terms of how much these guys specific, specifically have been used, Seawald threw 22 pitches, what it would have been, it'll be game four one. days ago. Yeah. Yeah. In game one. Same thing with Kevin Ginkle. Hasn't thrown since game one. Joe Mantiply, 15 pitches in game one. That guy could, if he throws well, could give you three. I don't know how much they want to stretch him out, but he could. Ryan Thompson, same thing. Game one, right? He gave you 17 pitches then. So they've got all of their best bullpen arms fresh. I mean, as fresh as you're going to be at this stage of the season. Uh, I think that's really good news overall for, for the Diamondbacks. And definitely the pitching situation lines up to very much favor uh, this Diamondbacks team. And I think we're probably going to see them. And this is a, a similar spot though, too. How much do you stretch these guys out? Because you got another game that you really got to win regardless, whether you win it or lose it, you really got to win, you know, game five as well. Um, so how much do we see of Kevin Ginkle? How much do we see? Is it just one inning? Thompson, I think is the guy that ends up being stretched out to to one to two, but I think they're going to need Mantiply to give them some length. I, I, it's, yeah. It's a really interesting setup here. Um, and again, it's going to be a nice little game of chess. We'll probably have to see one of these guys from the bottom of the barrel that we saw today as well. Uh, one of Castro, 
Frias. I mean, Frias threw 20 pitches, so he probably won't go. Nelson or something. He might. It's it's game four of the World Series. Like these guys gotta go. And and arm, like to be completely honest with you, we keep calling it the bottom of the Diamondbacks bullpen. I have more faith in guys like Frias and Nelson and Saul Frank. Like I think they can be moderately effective right in one inning spurts. Will one of them give up a run? Probably. But if you go Mant by for two, then you got Frias, Sal Frank, Nelson, Ginkle, Thompson, Seawald. That's six guys to cover seven innings if Mantiply can give you two. Yeah. That's a good bottom. And then, of course, you have Zach Allen, and you just got to get everything out of him that you can. But then you got Nady Evaldi on the other side. That's why this game is must win. Yeah, like You I- have to win this game, especially with Gallon's struggles and with how good Evaldi has been. But to the downbacks credit, they did hit up Evaldi. But, of course, you probably can predict that Eovaldi makes his adjustments and comes back and is a vintage Eovaldi or at least close to it. But Gallon, like what adjustments are we going to see here? So we're moving forward, but it's like game four is so impactful for game five, game six and game seven, like this game. And this is why, while it is Heaney, while it is Mantiply, this is a must tune in game because I think the way that these bullpens are managed and whoever wins will decide this series like if the Diamondbacks can win this game this series is completely live if they're able to get just one inning spurts from all these guys and rest them enough because like you said if Seawald Ginkle and Thompson they all throw one and change and they're you know all under 25 ish pitches they can be full goes in game five yeah so and then you're hoping incredibly important. And then you're hoping Merrill Kelly, e- even on short rests, would be able to give you six or seven. I mean, that's you, 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 you need Merrill Kelly to give you six to win this World Series. And you, you need Zach yes. Gallon to give you five or six to win this World Series, most likely. So that's probably what they're hoping. At the end of the day, you can look ahead. I know Gallon hasn't been sharp, but you can look ahead and say, that's our guy. That's a starter that we know is capable of giving us five, six, seven innings. You can't say that in game four. So I think you're right. Like this is a spot where if you got to use every single arm, you use every single arm here because of how pivotal the game is in terms of, of how the, the series would line up, you know, if you're down three to one. But beyond that, you have your two best starters potentially going after that, uh, which you know puts you in a position to at least not need the bullpen. You're hoping nearly as much. And if you do, you're probably out of it at that point anyways. So that's the difference. And it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Young manager versus one of the most tenured and experienced young team and young team. Like it's all the storylines are there. Uh, And I I think that's what makes this really fun. And I think this series is, is not slowing down anytime soon. And we'll see you after game four recap the entire thing on tomorrow's episode, but arm Layton and I are going to head to bed. I hope (laughs) all of you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, Please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts five stars and leaving a written review would be greatly, greatly appreciated if you have been enjoying it. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that big red subscribe button. We're doing everything that we can. All we ask, you just hit the subscribe button. Like, why not? How about a like, a comment? That'd be awesome. And of course, if you want to get your Just Baseball merch, I'm rocking the hat, arms rocking the polo. We got it all in the merch store, which you can find in the episode description. And all of this is brought to you by the King of Sportsbooks, and that is BetMGM. That's Arm Layton. I'm Peter Apple. We'll be back tomorrow. And with that, thank you, everybody.
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 